Ladies and gentlemen, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever you may be celebrating this holiday season. This is going to be our very last podcast of 2019. Feels kind of weird saying that, but like we said on our, on our last pod, it's kind of crazy that we made it to, to 30 podcasts, um, but we're happy to be here and we want to wrap up on a high note, wrapping up the decade um, with a little bit of a review of the last wow, 10 years since 2010, uh, what's kind of going on in the, uh, in the footballing world. But we both took a couple of days off to, to relax and whatnot, spend time with our families. Rian, um, maybe begrudgingly, we're not sure, but we, uh, we both put our feet <laughs> up for, uh, for a little bit, but, uh, Rian, man, how was your, um, how's your Christmas? Uh, Christmas was nice. And, um, no, n- nothing to uh, be upset about. It was, uh, really nice and relaxing. Um, I did not did not do much. I stayed in my house for the most part. Um, I'm happy to have one of my my sister from who's lives in Washington came back for it, so that was pretty nice. And um, yeah, as as some people who may follow me on Instagram saw, I had to wear some very <laughs> very packed very tacky slash uh i guess wholesome uh pajamas for a family photo so it was very was, uh, uh, family was oriented different. day for you yeah it was yeah that was that was different from our normal uh christmas in the trim household here but a hundred percent my sister's idea so <laughs> yeah you probably didn't have any um any way of fighting back on that did you no not really i it, it was just it was given to me i didn't even know no one told me beforehand but other than that, I mean, uh, uh, the Sixers won, so that was great too. Pretty good few days here, <laughs> sports wise. Um, you know, we're we're just 15 minutes away from the Chelsea game starting, and I expect to be, if not disappointed by them, then uh, perhaps perhaps Sunday when through the Eagles. But, but yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not gonna get two weeks in a row. Uh, I will try. Yeah, this is this is like a lot of good runs for sports dudes that I follow. So something's <laughs> gonna have to give someone here. I, I can't imagine that 2019 will end with me being in total bliss in a, in a uh, sports supporting way. Oh, without a doubt, it will not. That's not how uh, Philly sports or honestly our luck in general works. So we'll see what happens the rest of the year. But we'll, we're going to talk a little bit about some of our. I guess moments throughout the decade that kind of stood out to us. I mean, this decade was filled with so many ridiculous moments, everything from world cup wins to Copa America wins to champions league heartbreak, everything in anything in between. So we're going to start off with a couple of honorable mentions before we get to our three individual defining moments. But I guess to start off my, my first honorable mention, this genuinely did not make my list. So you know that this is not a biased list. Um, but Messi's 91 goals in the calendar year is an honorable mention for me. In, in 2012, he finished the entire calendar year with 91 goals. And I remember this was a year or two after I started actively watching Barcelona on a regular basis. And when he did that, I, I remember talks of um, him breaking 
Jared Muller's um, record. And I, first off, I didn't genu- I genuinely did not know who that was um, originally. And I realized as he kept on scoring these goals and, and just going on an absolute tear that, that it was, it was just incomprehensible how many goals and how consistent this guy has been for the last decade. And I think this exact year kind of personified all of that, right? He's still someone who creates, who, you know, makes assists, pretty much opens a game up for all of his teammates, but to do all of that and combine it with 90, 91 goals, like that, that is insane. I think any player, if they stay at a club for say four or five years, if they score 91 goals, I think they're happy. This was 91 goals. Yeah. Yeah, This was 91 goals in a calendar year. I I, I can't, I can't even wrap my head around it. No, I mean, that was, it it was an absurd year to, to break Gary Mueller's long, long, like like 60 or 40, I think it was 40 to 50, about 50 years old. But when he, when he broke it, when he broke it, the record itself, um, no, I mean, it, it was stunning. And it was like the one, not the one year, but it was it was a season when he was a bit more selfish than in, in other times. And that is not something you saw that you've seen that much. I mean, granted, Messi's role has kind of morphed into being something greater than I think what it was at that time in terms of like what he's asked to do for the team. And then yeah. generally that 2012, that 2012 team still had Iniesta and Javi on, <laughs> in the midfield. Right. So, so granted, it makes sense that he, that he wasn't asked to do as much from the midfield sense. So, I mean, that's when he was just kind of allowed to be the, just the man up front and take as many shots as he wants. And, and it was, they were, a lot of them were going in basically, but (laughs) it was, it was a fantastic, it was a fantastic year. And it's, I can't, I imagine it'll probably, that record itself will, hold for at least as long as Gerd Mueller's uh, record held as well. So I mean, it, there's not much else to describe Little Messi, but yeah, that, that year was obviously otherworldly. And that's when we were really like, okay, yeah, he's truly different yeah. <laughs> than, than anyone else we've ever seen. Yeah. That was something special, but we'll go ahead and move on to, uh, to Rian's honorable mentions here. Rian, what do you have for us on your, your list of honorable mentions? So for my for for one of mine or my first one here, and it's actually probably going to be a big surprise that this doesn't end up on either of our three defining moments, and and I would say it only it doesn't end up on mine because one of my moments is fairly biased, but <laughs> it has to be Leicester winning the twenty fifteen sixteen Premier League title. I mean that's that I mean that's should arguably be the, the defining moment for <laughs> league, for European league um, football in all of the 20, in all of the 2010s Leicester who went from almost getting relegated the season before they had one of the greatest escapes from relegation. Um, they were in 19th by halfway through of 2014, 15, right. And ended up finishing 14th on an amazing run to come back the next year and granted, it wasn't the greatest season for other <laughs> the big teams in England, right? But it was still the biggest. It's still got to be considered the biggest upset in, I think, modern football 
um, league football, at least, especially European league football, to have Leicester, a, a team whose budget is what, like maybe one twentieth of a, of the Manchester Cities, the Manchester United, the Chelsea's, to go on and win the league and have some pretty defining moments within their season. One of them being beating Chelsea and ending Jose Mourinho's reign at or second reign at Chelsea um, to beating Manchester City late in that season where they actually kind of dominated City. And that was when people were really like, holy shit, they're actually they actually really might win this. And obviously it, it all culminates to uh, Chelsea and Tottenham match where the, where the battle of the bridge where Chelsea goes down two nil and fight back. And, and obviously that game was crazy because of all of the non footballing stuff that was happening <laughs> on the pitch. But, but uh, obviously it all culminates with Eden Hazard's like wonderful goal that gives Leicester city the title. And it's, Still got to be the. I still believe it's probably the biggest upset in modern sports history. For me, for me at least. Honestly, that's. I'm. I'm very surprised that it's not on either of our top threes. Now that I think about it, because that was the most. I would say top three most unexpected events to have happened in the last decade, footballing wise. Like there, it was the most. I think it's the most. I, 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 I really am saying the only reason it's not automated is. I mean, people, you guys will hear what my first one is, and <laughs> and if not for what my first one is, then the lesser would be on. The lesser is winning the title would be on there, but it has to be mentioned. I mean, it's, it just has to be mentioned. Yeah, no, that that's very fair. It's just. It is when you look back and look at how consistent that team was over the course of the entire entire Premier League. The, I mean, the one thing that obviously helped them along the lines is that they could focus all of their energy on the Premier League, right? But no one ever thought that they would have the the players of the quality to do what they did that year, right? Like Claudio Ranieri um, is is just incredibly good. At man, man, or he proved that he is incredibly good at man, man, man. You know what I'm saying? Man, man. management. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that word. Because having to keep your players emotionally, you know, mentally and, and physically in shape for an entire Premier League campaign or an entire league campaign for that matter is so difficult. And he, with the players that he had for that period of time, was able to do that when we've seen some of the best, you know, best quote unquote managers in the world completely fail at that. And, and that they haven't been able to cross over that line. And he's so humble. He's so down to earth. He, he was such a likable character. And I think that made that entire win for them all the more better. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I, I think even the bigger thing is, is keeping, the confidence of these of those players, you know, having instilling the belief in them throughout the season that they actually could do it, right? Because you know, obviously, they, they I'm sure they came to the season like any other team who's not expected to really challenge for even top four came into the season with pretty much the mentality of let's finish as high as we can. Um, we think we have a good team. We can finish as high as we can. Let's we're we're not. Let's try not to get. Obviously, let's try not to get relegated. But like, you know, their first thought would have been 
let's get enough points to make sure we won't be relegated. And then after that, it was let's finish as high as we can. But then for him to be able to keep the confidence so high that they believe that they could really go on and win the league, I think he has to get a lot of credit for that too. And when you look at look at the players on that team, like when you look back, there's, there's some great players on the team, right? Yeah. Um, you had Riyad Mahrez, who obviously is still a very, very, very good Premier League player. You had N'Golo Kante, who the next season went on and um, played at Chelsea and, and became the first player to win a Premier League title in consecutive seasons with two different teams. And and, you, and then you still have Jamie Vardy, who's 33 right now and leading the league in goals and and has been hitting 20 goals based every season just about since then, right? So, um, I mean, it was, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful story for... English football, but but I think European football in general. Absolutely. I mean, I remember the one thing that he said at the beginning of the season during a press conference. This is Ranieri. He said, uh, he was asked, you know, what's what's the goal for you this season? What does success for you look like? And he goes, 40 points. That's what we want to hit. Our goal is 40 points. And then by the time the middle of the season came around, he was asked the same question again. He said, well, it's not 40 points anymore because we already reached that. So, um, he, yeah, that, there's everything about this team that there was to love and if you're a sports gambler then you really lucked out with that bet um but yeah and absolutely were five, yeah they were, yeah that's a good point too they there were five thousand to one to win the Premier League <laughs> going into the season i mean that's just absurd uh, absurd odds to to be able to overcome that um but yeah wonderful wonderful uh and then i think i've got one more honorable mention i don't know about you Alex, but I, I do have do have to also throw a quick shout out to the 2016-17 Monaco team winning oh the my French God, League yeah. title. You know, and, and talk about another team that that you go you look back that we'll look back on as a legendary team because the players. I mean, arguably the player the quality of the players on that Monaco team was I think was higher than the than the Leicester team, especially when you look at what has happened to like the the players from that team that have gone on who have gone on to are playing at massive clubs now and it's still very successful careers right they overcame the behemoth that is PSG that season right um and with a team of just a lot of very very young French and also then you have Fabinho on the team of a young Brazilian midfielder and a wily, wily veteran in Radamel Falcao, who's like coming off of an ACL injury just 18 months prior to that. The team was awesome, and they had some obviously wonderful performances, including you know beating Manchester City in the Champions League. It has to be one of their has to be their one of their biggest moments from that season. But that team had a young, young Kylian Mbappe, who is still very, very young, but but an 18 year old yeah. Kylian Mbappe, and and that's when we first learned about him. That's when we then first started seeing how uh, this kid might be special. You know? And I think one of those big moments was in the, the tie against Manchester city. We scored twice. And I mean, that, that team will go down, I think in legend because of how good those players actually were. And it wasn't like a one season kind of thing for them, especially since a lot of them did end up going to other teams and find success in um in other countries yeah and i think one of the the biggest things that happened outside of the footballing aspect of things you talked about that as well after that season ended and they went on their tear 
they I, I don't want to say that they started the conversations of breaking the the I guess transfer limit barrier monetarily, but they were a huge factor in that, along with the Neymar, Neymar transfer. So the 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 result of all of those result or I guess the consequences, if you will, of all those results was also it was twofold. It was footballing and it was monetary. And they definitely set up a lot of things for what we consider, you know, modern football in, in terms of the, the business side of things, um, <laughs> less because they are Monaco and they're practically their own country, if you will. Um, but that, that team was something special. And I think arguably for Falcao, like specifically coming off of the injury that he was coming off of, that was arguably one of his best seasons ever, in my opinion. Um, he obviously had incredible time at Atletico Madrid, but that for the circumstances that he was in, in my opinion, one of his, his best seasons ever. So I think that team absolutely deserves a, an honorable mention, but I'm, I'm very interested to see how, um, how the rest of our three decade defining moments um, kind of compare to everything else. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, do you think we should begin, Elias? Absolutely. Elias is- if there's no, I um, I don't have any more honorable mentions. Um, but those those are some good shouts as well from from your end. So we can start off on well the three decade defining moments. And I went not so chronologically here, but I'll I'll make it chronological. Why don't I? Um, my first decade defining moment was Spain winning the World Cup in 2010 i personally was i actually did not watch that world cup final i was traveling during that time but after this spain team who had won the euros in 2008 in such a dominating fashion after they came to this world cup they started off the tournament with a loss and a lot of people were a little concerned especially after seeing how well they had done the past two to three years i would say from a footballing perspective obviously you had the the midfield core that was up and coming you had one of the best strikers around in fernando torres you had one of the best young midfielders in Cesc fabregas and you also had a david villa who was starting to enter into the conversation as a, you know a world-class winger and all those things combined into a tumultuous start at 2010 world cup but the fact that they were able to go on that run the way they did everything from you know beating Germany in the semifinals to the way that Iniesta scored against the Netherlands after a, a rough season for him in Barcelona, um, everything culminated in that moment and put them on the map as one of the best teams that international football has ever seen. They were, in terms of quality, by far you know, well above everyone else. And I think this world cup win completely solidified that in a lot of people's minds. And obviously they went on to win the euros in in 2012 on top of that. And that was icing on the cake, but the cake, but the world cup win in 2010 opened everybody's eyes to the fact that this was a new brand of football that could work against any team in the world. And I think this was a huge, huge moment for the decade. Yeah. I think there's a couple of good things to mention from that too is that you know coming into that world cup spain had historically been seen as 
well, I guess especially before the 2008 Euros, but historically they've been seen as, as pretty big underachievers, right? That that's yeah. You know, there was always the talent in Spanish play, players, right? But it was all about could they get it done, and, and that narrative started to change in 2008 with the Euros, obviously where where they dominated Italy in the final, winning four one. They were they were just such a class above Italy in that fi- in that 2008 final, right? And to carry it on to 2010 where, you know, there was some really great teams like that Netherlands team was fantastic and they were pretty much a unbelievable uh, foot save from Casillas against Robin from possibly winning that, <laughs> that yeah. World Cup final, right? Um, you know, that the Spanish team really, for those four years – from to win three international tournaments, major international tournaments consecutively, it it did really cement them as one of the greatest international sides we've ever seen. And I think like a big thing to mention too is you have to feel that you know with a lot of those players who playing together, who played together in Spain, played together for Barcelona and Real Madrid, it, that I think was. Their biggest uh, advantage against with other teams, right? Um, especially you see the, that midfield, Fabregas, Iniesta, and Xavi. I mean, it doesn't get. I don't think it gets any better than that. Maybe historically, <laughs> in an international side, you had three guys who came through Barcelona's academy. So there's art. They already had the philosophy ingrained in them from from its very young age and then obviously you had Xavi and Iniesta playing together every week um at Barcelona and then you throw in David Villa who was still a fantastic striker at that at that point right and yeah. he also played in Barcelona like, there was there was so much continuity between that team uh, players who played with each other for such a long time played in the same team club football and also play in the same league and just knew each other so well. I mean, that that had to be, in terms of chemistry-wise, one of the greatest teams when you just look at how much they probably knew about each other and knew about each other's playing style going into that tournament. And it was probably just so easy for them to play with each other. But but you're right, that that team, just playing style-wise, that, that was kind of the beginning of the revolution Right. I mean, it really starts with Pep Guardiola, but but that this was part of it. Right. You know, this is only yeah. what one year, one year um, or, or two years after Guardiola began his reign at, at Barcelona. Right. So it's it's actually really understated how big of an impact this team made on the sport itself, because people saw that and that is a big catalyst to where we are now with why possession is such is such an important thing or it was always an important thing but why people see it as such an important thing now and it's seen as that at the international level you see you see how just speaking with u.s soccer since that you know the, that team changed everything and from that point on i would say like even like u.s soccer fans or fans of other countries were always looking like why can't we be more on the front foot and stuff. And and I think that team changed a lot of people's mind in terms of what should be important in terms of um, success on a football pitch. And 
they'll be always regarded as, as like I said, one of the greatest international teams, international squads we've ever seen. Oh, for sure. For sure. And it was an absolute incredible time to be alive to watch this team play around the way that they did. Obviously they're not at their peak anymore, but to see that for the several years that they were was, was something special. But with that, let's move on to um, your, of course, non-biased um, first decade defining moment. You want to, uh, you want to tell us what that is? Oh, I mean, this one for me is so easy, right? <laughs> we go back <laughs> I, but at the same time, it is it is still got to be regarded as one of the biggest, uh, I'd say, Champions League upsets from the decade for sure. I mean, yeah, I can uh, still hear Gary Neville's absolute groan in my uh, in my ears every night before I go to sleep. <laughs> so this is Chelsea winning the 2012 Champions League final against Bayern Munich in Munich, of course, where the final was played. Um, that season in general for Chelsea was just very, very weird. Uh, um, people may not remember this, but at the beginning of that season was the start of the Andreas Boas era at Chelsea, <laughs> <laughs> which lasted for about four months. Um, Legend. A, a lot of that, a lot of that having to do with the fact that they. With about three, with the first three matches through the group stage, they were really up against it in terms of they might not have made it out of the group in the Champions League, right? But um, Andre Villas-Boas gets fired just in, at, in uh, about the middle of November, and Roberto Di Matteo comes in as caretaker manager, and they find a way to to make it out of the group. And like I said, weird season. Chelsea end up finishing sixth. We will come back to why that ends up being very hilarious. <laughs> so Chelsea makes it through round of 16. They, they just barely get away from Napoli. They, they overcome a 3-1 deficit from the first leg against Napoli to win 5-2 in the, in the home leg um, in after extra time. And from that point, it feels like there's something kind of magical about this Champions League run. Not dissimilar to uh, Tottenham's run this uh, last Champions League season, right? There's something special going on because, again, in the league, they're getting basically nothing done. <laughs> they're, they're just so, so very um, disappointing league-wise. But they go on to, they beat uh, Benfica in the, in the round of uh, eight with the quarterfinals. And then in the semifinals, they draw as Elias will remember fondly, Barcelona. Uh, a Barcelona team who was coming off of winning the Champions League the year before and still would not be crazy for people to regard that era of Barcelona, those four years at um, with Pep Guardiola, and especially that season, um, or the season before and leading into that season for Barcelona, they were considered as one of the best club football teams we've ever seen. And they should be regarded as that when you look at the talent that was on the pitch. Right. Um, you know, when you, when you talk about this, it makes me feel so good until I, I like, I realize I know what's coming after this. 
<laughs> right. I mean, I have to get. I have to to set it up. I got to give them the credit. They were. They were. Oh yeah, yeah. They were arguably right. the best. That's fair. They were arguably the best club football uh, club football squad we've ever seen. Right. Um. With with their stomp on my just heart domination. Their just their domination of possession. The the quality of this is this is again a messy messy with a wonderful team around him where he's just allowed to be the absolute deadly, deadly striker that we know him as um, today, right? They go into that. The first leg is at uh, Sanford Bridge. And for some reason, up, this is, again, up until this point, Messi has a narrative around him where he cannot, where he, he can't score in London. He, he has He has not... We we saw him obviously a couple of years before that <laughs> destroy Manchester United at, twice actually in two different Champions League finals. But um, there was a narrative around him not being able to get it done um, in England at like a, a way to an English team, right? So there was this there was this weird there used to be this weird narrative around that, of course, which he broke handedly in <laughs> for the next <laughs> seven or eight years. But um, but no, Chelsea comes out of that with. An upset of a 1-0 win, uh, of course, a Drogba goal, as you would expect. And they're going, they go into the new camp where, you know, you never, you're never going to get out of the new camp without conceding goals, right? And and that was really always the goal that they were dreading is that is Barcelona scoring the first goal and Barcelona does score the first goal. And it just looks like it's going to be a long, long night and it looks like it's going to be even longer when they score the second goal. <laughs> and and it looks like basically it's going to be like a Game of Thrones kind of long night when John Terry, for reasons still unknown to this day, just knees Alexis Sanchez in the back of his leg when, when the ball is not even remotely close to them and gets sent off. And now Chelsea's down to 10 men. Um, with about five minutes left before halftime. And just a couple minutes after Terry's shown that red card, an absolute miracle, miracle goal from Ramirez, who chips uh, Valdez from just... A re- when you look back at it, it's, a, it's an unbelievable confidence to even take the shot, take oh, the chip from, yeah. <laughs> from the corner of the 18 very close to the touchline like it's it's actually a ridiculous goal um but that obviously gets Chelsea the goal that they need to make it through the tie but they still have the whole next 45 minutes and the whole next 45 minutes is basically Barcelona with like 85 percent possession and just in Chelsea's half for the entire uh half but the biggest moment from that second half as outside of the Torres goal is Messi gets a penalty kick. Like that, that is, that is the biggest moment. They have a chance to make it three, one and probably end the tie right there. Because at that point, Chelsea's down to 10 men and they have no, no chance of making it, um, of really taking control of that game. Right. But, um, Messi hits the crossbar and again, the narrative is still there. He's at that point, he'd never scored against Chelsea. Right. So, um, you hit to, and that's when you're really like, okay, this is really starting to get freaky here 
right? And all culminates to the biggest moment of Fernando Torres' Chelsea career, which is for the most part a massive disappointment, but he'll forever be seen as a legend because of this goal. Um, a ball that just gets cleared to Torres, and he has a one-on-one with Valdez in which a one-on-one that feels like it feels like an eternity. He has, he's had basically has a one-on-one from the midway point. There's no defender anywhere in that end because obviously Barcelona is pushing for the, for the goal. Um, there's no defender in sight and he rounds a keeper. And that moment that Ellis is talking about Gary Neville's moan um, when he, when uh, Torres scores that goal is kind of really when Chelsea fans are like, Holy shit, this is actually might be the year after years of heartbreak, especially the 2009 semifinal, which is <laughs> just, uh, just an absolute, uh, obviously a disgrace as Dragma called it as he's walking up the pitch, a fucking disgrace. Um, that heartbreak years and years of heartbreak where Chelsea had been trying, had been trying to win the Champions League and gotten so close uh, multiple times for this to be the year to go to Munich, to go down a goal, um, in the 82nd minute where Mueller scores that goal, a, a similar game to the Barcelona where, where Chelsea has almost no possession. And, you know, they came into that game with their entire back line outside of David Luiz injured and having to play uh, John Obi Mikel. Basically played as like a supplemental center back. I mean, the center back combo was David Luiz and Gary Cahill. And then you had, Bossingwa and Ryan Bertrand as your as your fullbacks, um, a team that had no business winning a Champions League <laughs> final, but um, once again Drogba miraculously scoring in the 88th minute off of, off that corner from Juan Mata, and Chelsea going on to again, uh, Iron Robin had a chance to basically finish that game off with a penalty kick in extra time, and he's saved by check and then we go to PKs and obviously there's the two big moments from that is of all people um you have Bastian Schweinsteiger the most <laughs> Munich person there is <laughs> the most Bavarian of them all um having his penalty kick saved hitting the crossbar and Drogba following that up by putting it away and giving Chelsea the first Champions League title in their history and the greatest night in the, in as Martin Tyler described it, the greatest night in the history of Chelsea Football Club, um, winning the 2012 Champions League final. And that team was, the luster from that team was very, very fleeting as Di Matteo got fired about <laughs> seven months later <laughs> when, when they became the first team in Champions League history to not make it out of the group stage after winning the Champions League the season prior. But it just shows you how magical that, season was and to get back to their finishing in the league their league position finish they finished sixth and the top four that season was obviously Manchester City finishing first United finishing second Arsenal finishing third and Tottenham finishing fourth but by rule at that point you could only have four teams in the Champions League from your one country so Chelsea Winning the Champions League, not only was their greatest night, 
for them, but was also perhaps one of the darkest nights for Tottenham because a win meant that Tottenham were out of the Champions League for the next season. Yeah, that was way more painful hearing again from your mouth than it was <laughs> just knowing what happened. But you're 100% right. Like This was a year that shocked the world that Chelsea had negative business being involved in the latter stages of the Champions League. But I think the, just the funniest part of all this is the fact that Di Matteo was fired after like this entire season, right? Like this, that blew my mind. I remember reading that news and thinking like, what do you have to do to not get fired then? Like, what is the, the metric that you're held to as, as a Chelsea coach? Like, I'm not sure what I, I Roman Abramovich, I guess was still the owner at this point. Right. He was, yeah, of course. Yeah, so what was he? I mean, he's still the owner today. I, right, well. right, right. But I'm saying at that point he had taken over the team, and, and I'm thinking to myself, what, like, if you're the owner of this club, even monetarily, like, what do you expect? Like, what, did you, what more did you want? Like, winning the Champions League gets you a lot of money. Getting you know, into the latter stages alone gets you a good amount of coverage. Like, I was trying to genuinely justify this in any way, but – that was the biggest thing for me. It was the fact that Di Matteo was fired, but obviously winning your first champions league ever is, is something extremely, extremely special. Um, but the way that they did it was even more ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it was again, as Martin Tyler, um, described it, their Holy grail. They said it was the Holy grail. It was what Roman Abramovich. I mean, obviously after winning the, the premier league, but it was always, not just from the owner, not just from Abramovich. I mean, it, I think it was always a thing he was looking for. But from a lot of those players, you know, when you think of Lampard, Terry, Ashley Cole. Um, yeah. Ashley Cole did start in this game, too. Ashley Cole, those guys had been through all of those really, really disappointing ends to their Champions League um, campaigns together. And to finally get over the hump, um, you know, that that this was this was will always be seen as their crowning achievement as you know as like a core of that Chelsea team I have to include Drogba there too obviously because he also experienced all of that with those guys so Petr Cech too you know those guys that core of that Chelsea team experienced all of this together and um yeah this was the this was a culminating moment and it was at that point Drogba's last kick as a Chelsea player he obviously came back a couple seasons later um when Jose Mourinho came back but uh yeah, it was. It was just it, like it, it was like the weight of that, you know, not too unfamiliar to like to the Eagles finally <laughs> getting over the hump and winning and winning um, the Super Bowl. Yeah, in terms of like the heartbreak that was felt in the years of coming close beforehand, it was it was pretty similar. I think the feeling was very similar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I kind of agree with that that same sentiment, um, but obviously an incredible incredible season for Chelsea one of their I guess best in the decade I'm not sure how to qualify that I guess it depends on your yeah, own it's, it's perspective. So, it's, again it's 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 arguably the worst their worst team of the decade but but right it's one of the champions league yeah it, it's it is an odd one to think about it was weird but with that we can go ahead and move on to the next decade defining moment and Rihanna and I kind of included I guess different moments in the same 
similar period, if you will, and that is around the the 2014 World Cup, um, of course, which Germany won against Argentina in the final. But one of Rion's moments here was the the infamous seven one. Uh, in the semifinals before Germany or Germ- that Germany won against Brazil. Um, and one of my decade defining moments was actually the world cup final in 2014 itself. Um, and I'm sure we obviously put it there for, for do- two different Rion, uh, two different reasons, but Rion, um, I'm curious to see like of all, of all the games, you know, people could have thought of, I didn't even put like the, the Barcelona six, one against PSG. I didn't put, you know, Liverpool for Barcelona. Yeah, that, like, yeah, that's an honorable. Yeah, that those are that's an those are two honorable mentions that that we probably should have included. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, sure. they're they're definitely they're definitely huge moments. I'm just curious as to to why you put the the seven one in here. What what was so special about this for you? And I'll and I'm, I'll talk about the the final. Are you well. kidding me? <laughs> what? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> saying it wasn't. I'm not saying it wasn't because that was the most memorable moment from the entire tournament. The the final was pretty horrible. <laughs> the final was not good. That's why. I know the final was. You tell. Great. The better question terrible. is why did you put the final over over Brazil losing seven one. In Brazil. <laughs> okay, okay. I need you to explain why you put the final. Sure. All right. So this, I'll talk about the final. The final specifically was obviously not amazing. It saw both sides miss ridiculously good chances. Um, ended up pretty much a nil-nil until the last five minutes where, of course, Mario Gota went on to, to win it for Germany. But this tournament for me, um, especially for Messi, was supposed to be and could have been his shining moment in his entire career right of course the world cup is something that every player dreams of but it's very very rare that it's as feasible as it is for someone that that is this good and having to miss out on it in the way that he missed out on it i'm not i'm not going to even mention you know Iguain's misses or what have you but from the start of this tournament, even from qualifiers before the 2014 World Cup, Messi dragged his team. He, he dragged Argentina through the mud to get them through to the group stages, right? He scored a last-minute winner against Iran to get them through to the round of 16, right? He, he practically dragged this team through hell and high water to get them to the World Cup final, Right, he was the focal. Yeah, it wasn't that great in the group stages. No, or, sorry, in the uh, in the knockout no, no, stages. No, he, but, he wasn't. But he did carry them through the group. He got them through the group. I'll give him that. Right, from an overall perspective, he he practically dragged them, like he does a lot of teams that he's around because they're just not at his caliber. But to get that far, to get all the way to the final and not win it, it did one thing. I think in in a lot of people's minds for for you know, the conversation around his career and the conversation around who the greatest ever in football is. And it, it tainted it for the, for the rest of his career. There was, there was no going back after losing a world cup final, after getting as close as he possibly could have, you know, he was never going to win it in 2018 with the team he had, and he likely won't win it in 2022 because he'll be 75 years old. But it's, <laughs> that was the moment to put everyone to bed. If he, if he had, you know, scored or, or I guess not going wide of the post to, to Neuer's left, you know, by a couple of inches. Yeah. He right? did have a great chance. Yeah, yeah. We could be talking unequivocally about the best player ever. And we could have easily have had that conversation years ago and it would have been put to bed. There would have been no, 
no conversation about it. But because I think of that final and the fact that he did not win it, but made it that far, put a lot of doubt in people's minds. Of course, not mine, obviously, but I, I think that that opened up the conversation to to questioning whether or not he was the best player to ever live. And I think that's why that was such a such an impactful moment. But of course, you know, the seven one is one that will be talked about for forever. Right. I mean, just just to stay on that welcome final. I mean that it was so disappointing because I, I think at that point people wanted to see him do it. It wasn't like a. It wasn't like uh, oh, we just want to bash Messi or or whatever. Like it was at that point we considered him in like the top five of players we best players we've ever seen. Right, and so you know when someone's that good, you want them to have that moment. Right, you want them. You wanted him to have the '86 World Cup moment that that Diego Maradona did with with Argentina, and and I know it's that's always going to be his comparison because they're from the same country, and and Maradona is generally considered as one of the two or three best footballers um, that history has ever seen. But you know, you wanted him to, to you wanted him to have the moment. You wanted you wanted to see it. Um, and it was that's what I think was the most disappointing thing from football fans is that he was slightly dis- he was somewhat disappointing in the in the knockout stages and and for the most part in that final um, like you said he had that great chance to put it away right um, exactly to put it past exactly. Neuer I believe it, I believe it was in the second half um, I can't I don't remember if it was first or second half but I that's, I think that's that what either, sucked yeah. yeah I think that's what sucked most about it is that people wanted it to happen for him. Um, it wasn't that people, it wasn't like people were sitting there waiting for him to fail and, and um, kind of jeering him the entire time being like, and be like, Oh, well he can't do it. Whatever. I mean, he, he was so great in those group stages. We were all ready for him, for him to take over for that world cup and, and lead them to um, lead them to a, to a world cup trophy. But uh, it, it'll always be seen as a slight, as obviously a, a blemish on his overall career. Uh, I, I, I want to say a small one, but it is a World Cup final, so it can't be yeah. that small of a blemish. But, um, but, but it, will always, it will be something that is thrown against him for sure. Um, and, and that's just unfortunate. Uh, that's very unfortunate. I, I don't think anyone will ever really doubt that um, his technical ability or, or the fact that, like I said, he is one of the we do probably see him now as Messi um, probably see him now as if not the greatest player we've ever seen one of the two maybe. Um, so yeah, disappointing for him. I, I, I tell you it was disappointing for him and I'm sure that's probably will be his biggest regret of his career is not being able to win the world cup for his country. Absolutely. I mean, it, it sucks. We can't go back in time and change things like that, but at the same time, it's it really is what it is. I, I hate that saying sometimes, but it, it, you can't go back and change it. But this was such a big moment for for his career and, and the conversation around who the best footballers in the world and who the most best footballers ever were. Um, but let's move on to to that seven one. I mean, of course, it was Brazil getting absolutely smashed in Brazil. Yeah, but this is the this is the this is. Un- Unfortunately for for Brazilians, this is going to be what's remembered from this tournament more than anything else. Um, is that seven one? 
right? Um, Germany, coming into this, Brazil is riding the high of being the host nation and where they, they kind of pulled a few games out of their ass. Obviously, they, they could have easily and probably should have been eliminated by uh, Chile, right? Yeah. Uh, they were basically a... I don't remember if it was Alexis Sanchez who hit the crossbar like with maybe a couple minutes left in that in that game um in in um normal time and then they you know they win in penalties which obviously is always a, a crapshoot for the most part but uh they do that and then they get past Colombia and then obviously they have the the Neymar injury where he basically like fractures a bone in his back um against Colombia and he's not able to play the rest of the tournament but you get to this game and they're playing in the Maracanã. Like it's, it's like, this is it. Like, and they come out and Germany immediately hits them in the 11th minute Mueller. And then 12 minutes later, maybe a slightly thing that that people um, forget from this is Miroslav Klose scores and he breaks the record for most world cup goals ever with with, uh, 15. That, that's something that people are are always gonna are um that's a record that's never gonna, that is gonna be very hard to take away from him honestly uh that's a massive moment in his career but then the capitulation just <laughs> it began. an unreal capitulation Germany scores four goals in six minutes against against Brazil twenty fourth minute Cruz twenty ninth minute or sorry, 26th minute, Tony Cruz again, and 29th minute, Kadira. And these goals are almost all just off the kickoff. Germany, uh, Brazil has the ball and just give it away. And Germany are just on them <laughs> and, and coming at them really, really hard. And, and Brazil has no chance, <laughs> no chance after, they had no after answer. 30 minutes, they're down. Then no answer. Thir- after 30 minutes, they're down five, they're down five nil. Like it, it's, Stunning, and I think a lot of people, a lot of soccer fans, will remember where they were when this was happening. I remember I had the game on my phone. I think I was, I was at. Um, I remember very well. I was. This was uh, in high school. This was junior year. I was at. Um, oh my gosh! I was at a rehearsal for for a drama thing, and I was like watch half watching the game on my phone too, and I'm just my mouth is just a game. My jaw is <laughs> not on the floor. My jaw is at the core of Earth's, <laughs> at the center of Earth's core. I cannot believe what I'm seeing. And it's it's one of the defining moments of the decade. It's one of the most shocking moments in World Cup history, of course. Yeah. And, you know, when you look back on this, you look back at the team that Brazil fielded that day and <laughs> just throughout this tournament – their striker was Fred. <laughs> and, yeah, he, not the Fred at Manchester United, although he probably would have been no. just as effective as a striker for this team. Oh, brutal. But, brutal. <laughs> but, no, Fred, like 34-year-old Fred who had never played in Europe, <laughs> played for Corinthians, he was their striker. Just kind of bundled everything when uh, whenever he got the ball, but that that the Germany or sorry the Brazil team, Fred up top, and then Bernard, Bernard the same Bernard that's on Everton right now, um, 
playing on left wing. At the number 10, you had Oscar. On the right wing, you had Hulk, who obviously was a, a, a FIFA legend at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but then their midfield was Luis Gustavo and Fernandinho, who eh, I guess he probably had the best career of anyone else on this team. Yeah, outside, okay. You know, when you look back on it. Uh, obviously, Marcelo had a, had a wonderful career too. Has a, had a wonderful career as well, and um, you had Marcelo at left back, Dante and David Luiz as your starting center backs, and Mykon, who was also very old by this point, also who's also in a FIFA early thirties, also FIFA legend. Yeah, I, um, legend also won won a Champions League title with Jose Mourinho. People, lo and people, I uh, may forget that. And in goal was. Julio Cesar, who was, again, very old at this point. But, uh, I mean, their only other option was Jefferson. This is this is pre-pre-Allison um, and guys like oh, well before, uh, Edison. Yeah. This was well before. This is this is before the, the kind of um, glut of talent that they have at, at goalkeeper now. But, no, they were um, – they were really no match for this Germany team who had the timeless Miroslav Klose, Tony Cruz, Mesut Ozil, and um, Thomas Mueller, who led the, who uh, scored what, five group stage goals that season? I, I believe he, fin- he ended up finishing second in goals that, in that um, tournament behind James Rodriguez. And he himself is at, I believe he's at about 10 um, World Cup goals. So he actually may have a, Outside chance at, at um, besting his compatriot, Miroslav Klose. But in the back, you had Hovedes and uh, Matt Hummels, Boateng, Philip Lahm. You had Kadir and Schweinsteiger as a midfield. You know, this, this was the best team overall in the World Cup, and, it, and it's no surprise they went on to win that, that World Cup final. But this will always be seen as the darkest moment it has to be the darkest moment in in um brazilian football history you know to, to lose this as the host nation to just basically barely get out of this without being bageled being completely shut out with the goal <laughs> oscar scores in the 90th minute um it, it's it's got to be really the darkest moment in their history people were you could see tears in the state in the stadium, and I'm sure there were a lot more tears outside it too, right? Oh yeah, um, it, it was embarrassing, and, and it's it's going to be a thing that's always remembered. And oh, a wonderful, wonderful World Cup moment uh, if you were not Brazilian. <laughs> it was one of those moments that you'll look back on and think, "Wow, I can't believe that genuinely happened." Like you talked about where you were in that moment. I I remember I was coming. I think I was coming back from work actually. And I was driving back and I saw the game had started and it was nil nil. And I said, Oh, you know what? It just started. I'll, I'll just go grab some gas. So I went to the gas station. Um, and it was one nil when I went to the gas station, I was like, Oh, you know what? I missed the goal. That's such a shame. And I left the gas station, drove no more than three minutes home. And I kid you not, it was already like four nothing. And I saw the last of those four goals that were scored in the six minutes but watching that or just seeing the oh my god it was like carnage it was honestly like watching carnage 
And I can't believe that Brazil had to go through that, but they also went on to win the Copa America this past summer. So I don't feel as bad for them. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's fair. <laughs> and, and this, and this was really the beginning of, I think of this new generation of Brazil, where a lot of these guys never saw, never got another cap for the team, which is as they should, right. You know, when you have such an, a, yeah, historically embarrassing performance, historically embarrassing result. You know, there has to be consequences, which is obviously where my biggest problems are with the U.S. Soccer Federation. You know, we don't make the World Cup, and then like half most of those guys still getting caps after that. But um, this is where they start, where the you know the kind of commitment to their younger generation happen, and, and it's the a big reason why. You know, you look at them now and you say, you know, they're always now you believe with the talent they have, you know, we're always they're always going to have a great chance at um, at, you know, winning the Copa America, as we saw they did win it. Um, and, you know, being World Cup contenders as they were last last uh, year in 2018 World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're definitely not the same team. Uh, based on the fact that they have very different players and uh, just totally different mentality. But that was, like you said, unbelievable to watch. And I hope we – I don't know if I, we, I want another moment like that in the in the near future, maybe so long as it's not a team that I'm supporting. But with that, we can we can go ahead and move on to, I guess, the last two defining moments that we both individually have. My, my last – and truly unbiased decade defining moment is going to be, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Real Madrid's three champions leagues in a row. I know that. Okay. That was a hard one to say first off, but that alone, <laughs> like think about the fact that this has never been done. Right. And the only team to, I believe they're the only team to, to actually win back to pack European Champions League or like European Championships, like before it was the Champions League, was also Real Madrid. And the fact that they were able to do this with just the lack of consistency they had in the league is one of the most confusing things, I think, to happen in the past 10 years. Because they started off, well, they won infamously against Atletico Madrid. Right in the um, in their first of many Champions Leagues that they won in a row with uh, the last minute Sergio Ramos header, right where they tied the game against Atletico and then went on to win in extra time, um, extra extra time I should say, not just injury time. Um, but that that kind of moment right there, I think, personifies their entire three years where they won it back to back to back years. Right, there were moments throughout the year where you would look at this Real Madrid team and say, they are nowhere near where they should be. Their quality is not there. They're not playing the way that they should, they should be playing, you know, what we associate a Real Madrid team to play like. But then they would turn up, and they would turn up on almost every European night. And it was one of the most frustrating things to watch, especially as a Barcelona fan, because you know how, I, I know how they were playing in La Liga. I know how they were playing week in, week out, and it was not good. It was not consistent, which is why they only won one league title under Zidane when he was there before he came back. And so watching that all unfold where it was average performance after average performance followed by 
scraping out a win or scraping out a um a, what's it called an aggregate win over pretty much any team in Europe was so frustrating. And there were times where you really felt like you could never win against them in Europe. And obviously we never came up against them in, in that time frame in Champions League, but we I think beat them uh, Barcelona beat them a majority of the times that we played each other in the Classico with the exception of um, 2017. And so, or I should say the summer of 2017 in the Spanish Super Cup. But that that was just, it was unheard of to win back-to-back-to-back Champions League finals. And to get there is even more impressive. And I have to give hats off to Zidane and his black magic or whatever was working at that time for him because that could only be the only logical explanation to be able to, to get there as consistently as he did. So I have to give him hats off for that. Yeah. And it's important to note here that until Real Madrid had won it two years in a row, that had never been done in Champions League era. That is, right. that is a very important thing to note too. And so to do it three years in a row, just with, with um, Ronaldo just, terrorizing Atletico Madrid's fan just in their waking nightmares for three for three straight seasons and then he continued it with with the Juventus last season um it, it was an unbelievable accomplishment um by Zidane and makes it even more hilarious that he ended up getting <laughs> fired like what uh less than a year later yeah. um and then and then came back again less than a year later yeah just it just shows how Absolutely crazy, Real Madrid, the Real Madrid um, or club is as a whole uh, to be able to withstand so much turmoil and still be able to win the Champions League three years in a row. You know, it's absurd. Um, it's yeah, it has to be one of it, one of the greatest like club accomplishments, of course. But for for this decade, you know, they deserve a lot of credit for it, especially. When they what only won the league once out of those three seasons, if I'm not if I'm not wrong, yep, right? Exactly. No. They were just so they're just they were just so inevitable on the league in Champions League nights, and they <laughs> just obviously had a switch that they could that not any other team in Europe had during that time. They had a switch that they could just turn on when they played in Europe and. It's just something that no one else could repeat and no one could live with for three straight seasons to do this in cup competition is really like unbelievable mentality from that team in general. Basically, if Jose Mourinho and Inter Milan didn't exist in 2010, Barcelona would have been able to do this. But uh, alas, that, okay. <laughs> that, <All right. laughs> that bald bastard exists. But it, it, it is true. This was one of the, the biggest accomplishments in European football outside of all the comebacks, out of all, outside of all the great teams that we've seen this decade. To be this consistent in Europe is, is super, super impressive. And I have to give hats off to Real Madrid where, where they do really well because that, that is something that will likely not happen for a very, very long time. Um, but – We'll see. I hope it happens to Barcelona after Valverde leaves, but that, that's a different conversation. Um, but we can, <laughs> we can go on go on and move on to the last decade-defining moment, and this is, this is definitely a special one. But, Rian, what is your, your last decade-defining moment? 
The last one, which is outside of Leicester winning the title, this is um, the biggest moment or second biggest moment of the decade for the for England. I'd say uh, the 2012 uh, title by Manchester City. Sergio Aguero scoring in the 90. I have to let me make sure I get this correct. 95th minute, unbelievable. Um, Scoring after Manchester United to, to set this all up. So City, the last couple months going into season, that looks like they're gonna they're gonna be able to finally win the title. They're eight points up with eight to play, and they have a, a string of a few bad results. And they go into their penultimate match of the season against Manchester United at home at the Etihad, where they are tied on points. And Vincent Company obviously scores that massive, massive goal to um, give them the one nil win and basically put the title in their hands. They just need to beat QPR on the final day. QPR, who's at this point in a relegation battle and needed a couple results to go their way to be able to stay in the Premier League. So we go into this day and 20th minute, Manchester United scores against uh, Sunderland. Wayne Rooney puts them up by one, 20 minutes in here, and it starts to get a little nervy there at, um, at the Etihad. And 39th minute, Pablo Zabaleta puts C- City in the lead and quells some nerves of the fans there, and they're up 1-0, and you know it's looking like things are going to be all right because all City has to do is match the result of Manchester United because... They already had them on goal difference, and a lot of that being the famous 6-1 earlier in that season at Old Trafford, where we saw the, the Why Always Me um, <laughs> shirt by Balotelli, where they embarrassed Manchester United on that day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we go into halftime, they're both at 1-1, and we come out of half, 48th minute, Jabril Cisse, absolutely stuns the entire Etihad with an equalizer to put it at 1-1, and now Manchester United is back on top here, right? And 66th minute at the Etihad, Joey Barton, the infamous Joey Barton, elbows Carlos Tevez in the face. Again, a John Terry-esque moment where the (laughs) ball is not even remotely on the same side of the field and he just elbows him in the face, gets sent off. There's a whole coming together with all the players. And as Joey Barton's walking off the pitch, really emulates John Terry and knees Sergio Aguero in the back of his leg. Oh, my God. Basically just trying to get another city player to like hit him or something and get a city player sent off too, but they didn't take the bait. Unfortunately, uh, a few minutes later, QPR go down the pitch and score again with 10 men and they put it at two one. And now at this point, if you're a city fan and a Philadelphia Eagles fan, this, (laughs) this feeling is very, very familiar. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is absolute depression there at the Etihad as as they push to score the goal to get the two goals that they need, and it just doesn't look like it's going to happen for them. Um, United is basically in the clear; they just have to finish and get the job done 
um, at Sunderland. And 92nd minute, Edin Dzeko comes in and scores off a corner and gives them some life. Um, there's still three minutes left of this game. They say they still need to get another goal. And just a minute before the 95th minute here, the Manchester United game ends 1-0. And at that point, Manchester United are champions of the Premier League, right? But one minute later, after Balotelli has come on, the ball gets played into Balotelli. As he's falling down, I think is the most underrated part of this goal. He's falling down and produces an assist. And as he's falling down, just nicks it to Aguero perfectly into his path. It's actually great, a great pass for Balotelli while he's literally like ass on the ground. Yeah. Um, and Aguero obviously scores the biggest goal in Manchester City's club history. Um, a great, great goal. He touches it past a City defender. The great first touch, and then fires it near post. It was actually just such a great strike. It, it just it's actually the hardest. It's actually he, he went over the most difficult way of scoring. Instead of going across the keeper, he went near post and just fired it in. And that's where you have the famous Martin Tyler call of um, basically having an orgasm, seeing Aguero. Um, and, and the entire roof goes off at the stadium where takes his shirt off. You see that famous image of him twirling it around and gets mauled by his teammates. Um, and, and it's, and it was really like such a massive moment in Premier League history because that's the beginning of four titles in the decade for, um, for Metro City. They, they'll end it. They end the decade with more Premier League titles, um, between 20, 2010 and 2019 than any other team. And um, it was really the beginning of a shift in Manchester and and a real equal footing that is now there. I mean, not maybe not quite as equal at this particular moment in time, but um, it was really the beginning of, of City being able to really stand toe-to-toe with Manchester United and not being the as uh, Sir Alex Ferguson called them, the noisy neighbors anymore. And you know, I, I think it's a massive moment in Premier League history in general uh, because it's, it's never happened before, you know, winning the league on, on literally the last kick of the season. Like, mind you, every other game had finished by this point. This yeah. was the last, last kick of the season. Um, amazing, amazing, really. Yeah, and I think... The the crazy thing about that is that we only saw United win the Premier League title after that one more time in the decade, and they haven't won it since. And that was obviously in, in 2013, but that kind of started the downfall of Manchester United yeah. since since that moment. Um, obviously, Ferguson leaving was a staple of that, but we haven't seen United reach those heights practically since the 2013 season. Um, and I think that with the way that City did win that game, the way that the whole league campaign in 2012 went from the, the I wouldn't call it a full on back and forth between City and United, but constant pressure from City on United throughout the entire season, culminating that that one moment was really, really special for the Premier League and certainly for, for City too. Um, and of course, they have a lot to celebrate now, uh, more so than, than ever. But that was an incredible moment for, for football, just 
seeing seeing a comeback like that or seeing something like that always it always elicits like just feelings of wow you know what i mean in the same way that you saw with different comebacks throughout the decade but this was this was pretty pretty special so shout out to city shout out to sergio aguero certainly one of the world's best strikers in the last 10 to 15 years um and he deserves all the plaudits for that for that goal too yeah of course i i should mention i i misspoke i meant to say united had that eight point advantage um earlier yeah. at, the, at the end of the season but um no yeah obviously like i said unbelievable moment for great a great advertisement for premier league football too i, I think um but it was, but great yeah um i think that's all we got here though at least i i will ask you one more question yeah for our two leagues for our two leagues the best players of the decade i mean it's pretty um you know it's pretty obvious. It's probably it's messy for La Liga. I would say um, mostly because Ronaldo wasn't there for the last couple of years of this decade. But uh, wow. but uh, wow. no, 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 no. He would be considered the the, the best player in in uh, La Liga, of course, for um, for the for the decade. Yeah, right. And for the Premier League, though, uh, there's it's a little harder, right? Um, I feel like. I'm not being too biased by saying that I believe it's Eden Hazard. Um, when you look at, he was at Chelsea from 2012 to 2019. So it's not small. It's not a recency bias or a small sample size. He was there for eight of the 10 years yeah. in, in the decade. Um, for me, I believe he, he won PFA player of the year uh, once. He won young player of the year once. Um, he could have won PFA Player of the Year a second time if if not for the lovely lovely smile of uh, Ingolo Conte. Um, but uh, for me, I believe he's. I believe, I think he was the player of the decade for the Premier League. But um, I would obviously. I think you could also throw in Sergio Aguero would be uh, another great option to say there too. But. Uh, how about how about for you, Elias? Yeah, you you kind of took the words out of my mouth there, but I was before you would say Eden Hazard, I would put Sergio Aguero above him because almost solely on the fact that they they both had their moments, both good and bad, um, and at their heights, they're easily the best players in the Premier League, um, and they have both won Premier League titles, but at the same time, I think Sergio Aguero has just been largely more consistent over a longer period of time than Eden Hazard has. And I, I think a product of that is age, right? It's, it's hard to, to be that consistent when you're, you know, very early on in your career, whereas Sergio Aguero is a little older, he's had time to mature, but it was, it's genuinely been so impressive to see someone as consistent as, as he has since the early 2010s to now, like he's still scoring at such a high level. And, and so is Hazard and, and, through the seven years that he was in England, but Sergio Aguero, man, has, he's he has done it at such a high level for so long, and I think that he, if if City were to get rid of Sergio Aguero, I think that they would have trouble filling his shoes with Gabriel Jesus over the same period of time that Sergio Aguero was there. Whereas with Eden Hazard, I think you can do that systematically. But there are little things that Sergio Aguero offers this Manchester City side that he has for the last, you know, several, I guess, what, seven, eight years um, th- that 
is irreplaceable. So he's personally my player of the decade. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good show. I I agree. Um, yeah, because I mean Aguero was there a year before in the in the Premier League a year before, and Hazard was, and um, I think and Hazard will also have to take a kick for the 2015-16 season where Chelsea ended up finishing 10th a year after winning the league, <laughs> a year after him winning player of the year too. And he, and he had a pretty, pretty horrible season. Um, so I, I think it's, I think, Hey, I, I think Sergio Aguero is the, the bet has been the best striker. Absolutely. In the Premier League for these last uh, nine years, basically. And so I don't think it's that crazy. I don't think it's um, a bad idea to put him as a, as the best player of the decade either. Yeah. But yeah, I was just, it's just curious uh, as your opinion. To yeah, that. no, that's very fair. Of course, mine for La Liga is never going to change until that oh, man retires. Okay, wait, one more. How, how about goalkeeper of the decade in Europe? Let's say in Europe. Europe. Oh, think, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people would answer Neuer, and I think that's a fair. <laughs> I think that's a fair shout. I'm, I, I want to preface that by saying it's fair. I personally think Neuer was slightly overrated. I think that he is a top. He was a top three goalkeeper for sure. But my answer, and I can't believe I'm saying this, probably Casillas. And I, I, and I think that yeah. he's he's just had the dominance that no one else has in being the starting Spain keeper for so long and being so incredibly good at what he did over such a long period of time. And again, consistency is key for me in that. But. Yeah, Casillas was something else, right? He always he was Spain's number one over Valdez, right? He was a captain, a leader for Real Madrid. He stood up whenever you know the the situation required it. He was really, really something special for for Spanish football um, and for European football at that too. And so, yeah, my my personal pick is Casillas. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a. It's tough. I, I. I think I'd probably have to say the same. I think Casillas is a great shout. Um, Neuer. I don't think Neuer was was overrated. I, th- I maybe to the extent that you do, but um, but I mean, he he definitely had the last three, probably three or at least three years. Um, he just has not been at the same level as he was up through the mid twenty tens, right? So. I think he's a great keeper. Uh, I think he's. I think he'd be. He's probably in the top three of the decade. Um, oh yeah. I'm not sure who third would be. I, I mean, third would be a tough one. Um, third would be tough. Yeah, third would be really hard. You could throw. You could. You could throw in David de Gea, perhaps. Although his last couple seasons have been very below the level that we expect from him. Um, there are like four keepers that I think you could include in that in that third spot, and I, I don't know who yeah. it would be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would wa- I would like to throw Petr Cech in there, but but he, you know, he was basically at the end of his career by the mid two thousand, so um, it's tough to to really throw him in there, right? To, even though you know, he you know, saved through the first half of the the decade, he was one of the best. Um, yeah, it's tough. It, it, there there have been some great ones. Um, but yeah, I, I think I agree with you though. Overall, you can see this when you when you look at not just club level, right? You know, winning two major international tournaments, to being the starting keeper 
yeah. um, on two major international um, teams like that, uh, I think has to be has to be something that's also uh, thrown in to it. Um, obviously, Neuer won a World Cup, so that's <laughs> that's a that's a pretty big thing too. So, I think it's between those two, really. Yeah, agreed, agreed. But incredible players throughout this entire decade, incredible moments, incredible events that have happened over the last ten years and. Throughout the, the tw- I can't believe I'm saying this, but throughout the 2020s, um, I'm sure we hope to see many, many more um, games, many more moments just like these, if not better. But with that, I think that's all we had in terms of decade-defining moments. Obviously, this was an incredible decade for football, but we're looking forward to, to many, many more of those memories in, uh, in 2020. So with that, have a very happy new year. We will be back after the new year with some more content once, uh, of course, more football games are played. Um, but we hope to see you guys then. Take care, everyone. Have a merry, merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, and uh, happy New Year's, guys.